This is Chapter 67 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Cherenkovich. We celebrate America's birthday this week with a novel that asks a big what if about George Washington. Then we hear from an author whose novel accounts the largely untold story of the AIDS crisis in Chicago in the 80s. And last, but certainly not least, we speak with the ever-popular Brad Thor. The entire history of the United States hinges on George Washington and his leadership during the Revolutionary War. But what if he had been kidnapped at the height of that war, sent to England, and forced to stand trial for treason? That's the premise of the new novel, The Trial and Execution of the Traitor George Washington. Author Charles Rosenberg tells our Paul Murnane where the idea came from. You know, I got the idea in part from reading long ago that the British had actually made such an attempt uh, early in the Revolution and failed using one of Washington's own uh, guards. And uh, one of the curious things is, as I've researched this more, I've discovered that maybe that didn't happen. But in any case, it was a, a, a kickoff for my writing this novel. Tell me about your background. You're a consultant for some television shows, and the book does, it, it does read like a thriller. It would make a great TV series or a movie, wouldn't it? It would. Well, I was the, I'm a lawyer, but I was the uh, script consultant for a number of TV shows, including L.A. Law, Boston Lawyer, Boston Legal to Practice. And so um, I got to read a lot of very good scripts written by people like uh, David Kelly and uh, so I learned a lot from reading those. Uh, I didn't write a word of those, but I learned a lot from reading them. And you imagine that um, in the U.S. during the Revolutionary War, contrary to what many of us believe we learned in school, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily a, a situation where everyone was all on the same side. There was a, a mix of opinion, and that certainly kind of reflects on what we see today politically, doesn't it? Well, I think that's right. I mean, perhaps as much as half the population uh, was not, at least initially, in favor of the revolutionary, at least in favor of leaving uh, England. They had some grumps and gripes, but I think a lot of people thought they could have been resolved in ways other than departure. What's the reaction to the title of the book? Is anyone kind of looking down their nose and narrowing their eyes at the, the trial and execution of the traitor George Washington? Are some people saying, how dare you? No, you know, no one has said that. I've been sort of fascinated. Um, I was actually a little bit worried about it, that somebody might say, who are you calling a traitor? Uh, But so far, no one has said a thing about that. Um, And I should tell you, my son basically came up with the title. He years ago walked by, saw what I was doing and said, hey, Dad, here's the title. And it stayed that way. You, you know, you give real life to George Washington. You put words in his mouth and you imagine him um, actually telling a joke when he's being brought back to, to Britain. He's on, he's on the vessel being taken back for trial, and there's a toast to the king, and George Washington, you write, raises his glass and says uh, to, our, to our wives and girlfriends, may they never meet. <laughs> it's interesting, interesting take on George Washington. I'm trying to picture him saying that. Well, you know, I read a lot about George Washington in order to, to write this. And uh, there are a lot of official writings by him, but not a lot of personal writing, because Martha, for example, burned his letters after he died. And it was a bit terrifying, really, to put words in his mouth. But I finally tried to, decided to try to treat him like his contemporaries described him, which was, uh, you know, always basically, what's the word? Well, measured, you know. But a human being who enjoyed uh, a drink now and then and so on and so forth. And so I just decided, well, uh, 
he's got to be somebody, and so I'm going to try to make him the way his contemporaries described him. And I'm sure he told jokes. I think you give a certain amount of life to him. I'm so used to seeing him as kind of stiffly posed in these paintings and such, and you really kind of bring him to life. You've done, you've done a wonderful job with that, I think, in this book. Thank you. Uh, a lot of research went into it. I, I'm imagining you, you know, digging through old dusty volumes in some old, some old musty library. You know, actually, most of the research was done sitting at my desk at a computer. Uh, I think research has really changed. I did some in libraries, particularly early on, because this project probably started really 15 years ago. Um, but a lot of it was done. It's amazing what is online. Uh, you know, all the National Archives have put a lot of their stuff online, including the British Archives and the U.S. Archives, and Mount Vernon has a great site. Um, so uh, it was mostly uh, pouring through dusty digital archives. You also do a great job in, in giving us a sense of our our world in that time. This takes place in New Jersey, a lot of it. That's where Washington is is captured. I believe in Totowa is where you place the tap the capture of Washington. Well, that's right? that's where his headquarters were, right? Yeah. And that's where uh, Jeremiah Black, the uh, the main character in your story, uh, rides in, and he takes George Washington away in dramatic fashion. But you describe uh, a four day journey on horseback from uh, the mouth of the Raritan River up to Totowa. We can jump on the uh, Garden State Parkway and the Turnpike and, you know, do it in a couple of, do it in an hour or two or on a Friday, a couple of hours. Yeah, well, one thing I learned is at the time what we call roads didn't really exist. They were more rutted tracks than, than real roads. And so travel was difficult. And in fact, one of the things that I uh, worried about is that I hadn't given them enough time to get from the mouth of the river to Totowa. Uh, but I think in the end I, I picked something that made sense at the time. Uh, one of the things that was the hardest to, to wrap my head around uh, was back in 1780, how long it took to get from one place to another, whether it was across the ocean or just you know across the state or the colony, and also the fact that there was no way to communicate at all other than by sending a letter. There was no telecommunications of any kind. And so that it took me a long time to really uh, wrap my head around that. You also uh, write vividly about the passion of the king and what the political climate was like in England. Um, I guess that that is that a lot of that is down in 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 black and white too, and you're able to ascertain that fairly easily. Or well, not. yeah, I was able actually to read some of the letters between George the Third and his prime minister, Lord North, which are preserved. Uh, as they're arguing back and forth about various things. And also, George III was so upset about the ultimate uh, separation of the colonies that he actually sat down and wrote a letter uh, of abdication, which he then never delivered. It's in the British archives. Really? Yep. So and the reason supposedly he didn't deliver it, it's speculated, is that his son, who would have been the, the new king, was kind of a dissolute guy at the time, very young, and was living openly with an actress in London. And so he <laughs> probably thought, if I abdicate, he's going to be the king, so maybe I won't do it. That's a tasty little detail that comes back over through the years and centuries, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. You sit and you read it and you go, wow. Is it a, a dangerous thing, though, to to kind of to, to, to meddle with history and to and to imagine a storyline that that veers from you know what what actually happened? It takes a bit of um, what can I say? You have to really get into it. 
You know, once once you decide you're going to do it, you go, well, I've decided to do this, so I guess I'm going to mess with history and see where I can get. But I tried, and I think most people who write alternative histories try to do this. I tried to stay as much as I could with the actual history I think, and just yeah. vary things a little bit. I think you have a, um, a wonderful character in, um, I guess he's, he's described as a British special agent, Jeremiah Black. Uh, right. Where, where does he come from? Was that was that just a, a compilation of people, or was there historically someone that kind of fit that description? There was not. Um, I suppose, you know, I could say as a novelist, I made him up. Uh, but I made him up based on the fact that so far as I could determine, uh, the British didn't have special agents in the way that, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs are special agents today. But they did have soldiers who were uh, deputized to particular missions and who had uh, skills that other people didn't have. And so I didn't find anybody exactly like uh, Colonel Black. Uh, I didn't think it was too much of a stretch to think that such a person existed. But I think you're on to something with him. I mean, are, are you thinking ahead to a future for him and maybe some more stories down the road? You know, several people have suggested that to me, and I actually don't have one in mind. But it's not a bad idea. Uh, I'm actually working on a new uh, his, uh, novel of the same vein, but it's set right before the Civil War. Yeah, that'd be you can't can't stretch him out <laughs> over time unless he's some kind of time traveler. Then you're getting into science fiction, and that's not your thing. Right. How did you um, How did you come to be a writer from the law profess uh, from the law profession? Uh, the lawyers that, that I know are so busy; they don't have time to sit down and write. Is this something you always wanted to do? I think the truth is I'd always wanted to write a novel. I've always wanted to write a novel. And in the 1970s, I started to write one that I didn't finish. And in fact, when I started this one, uh, my wife asked me, well, when I started my first novel, which was not this one, uh, my wife asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm writing a novel. And she said, are you going to finish this one? Uh, so long-term relationships have their downsides. How did you get? How did you get started? I mean, how did you kind of wrap your head around the process of doing it. You just, I guess you just sit down and you start, don't you? I think you just do it. I think, you know, I've read a number of, of novelists, certainly much more experienced than I, who've said the main way to write a novel is to do it. Um, and, you know, pretty much everybody knows how they work because most people have read hundreds or thousands of novels in their lifetimes. So you don't have to figure out the structure, really. You know, you just sit down and do it. It doesn't mean it'll be any good or anybody will want to read it. But uh, I don't. I think it just takes the the effort to do it. Is there more freedom in in writing um, a work of historic fiction from, say, Revolutionary times, Civil War times, than you know something that would be more modern, where you know you can look a up a clip of uh, a film and you can see you know someone actually stating the facts. Do you have a little more freedom to do something from an earlier time? I think there's less freedom actually. Really. Um, well, if you want to be true to what happened, and the reason is, if you're writing about contemporary America and you live in contemporary America, you know a lot without having to research it. You know what people wear, you know what people eat, you know where they live, and so on and so forth. But in terms of 1780, uh, there was once a book called uh, The Past as a Foreign Country, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, because I had to figure out you know, how did they get around? What did they eat? Where did they live? 
Uh, and that actually took quite a bit of, of research to figure out. Um, here, here's an example. People wore really heavy coats, men, with lots of buttons. And, and one of the things, they were very hot. And I wondered, well, did they take them off when they went into a meeting and drape them over the back of a chair, as I might with a suit coat? And the answer is no, they didn't. I guess they just sweated more in them. Um, so there were all kinds of little things like that 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 I think gave me less freedom if I was trying to be uh, to make it authentic. I think the garments of that era tended to build character. Uh, they must have. <laughs> they were heavy and hot and sweaty. <laughs> uh, as uh, someone who's in the legal profession, uh, how did you tackle the whole trial part of this uh, when you looked at the, the legal process uh, that was going on in, in, in England at that time? Uh, what were your impressions? Uh, my impressions were that uh, things were uh, actually 1780 was a particularly uh, fraught time and all that because the procedures were changing. Um, prior to that, for example, in the, a century before that, if you were uh, tried for a you know a capital crime, you weren't even entitled to have a lawyer. And then later on, you were entitled to have a lawyer, but your lawyer couldn't address the jury and make arguments. And so that was all changing around 1780 or about to change. So I, I read several books about uh, criminal procedure in that period of time, and my wife could tell you I sat there going, really? No kidding. Wow. Because <laughs> it was all so surprising. And then I tried to take that and, and make it into a realistic-sounding trial, but with, that, with honoring the, the, uh, the procedures at the time. Did you ever imagine yourself as a lawyer traveling through time and, and wonder what, what arguments you would have made and, and, and maybe what side of this you would have been on? Well, I, I like to think that I'd be on Washington's side, but um, not exactly, although I think when you sit down to write a trial that took place you know, a couple, 250 years ago, what you find as a lawyer is that the same arguments would be made, uh, not necessarily the same procedure, but the same kind of, well, think about this kind of argument, and uh, so it may not be that different, and of course, we are in a legal system that descends from that legal system. It's not as if we're in some non-Anglo-American legal system. It's a fascinating read, the trial and execution of the traitor George Washington out from Hanover Square Press, and we're talking with Charles Rosenberg. It's a great read. Good luck with it. And anything you want to say to the writers out there or the readers out there as we wrap this up? Well, I would just say uh, enjoy the book and try to imagine yourself back then with things having happened a bit differently. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the conversation with you. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. For her book, The Great Believers, author Rebecca Mackay approached the subject she wanted to write about just like a journalist would, interviewing people who lived it and witnessed it firsthand. The it we're talking about is the AIDS crisis in Chicago in the 1980s. I recently spoke with her about the book, which also graces the front page of this week's New York Times book review. I just finished reading your book this morning, and I'm still having a hard time processing everything. You've woven so much history and and the raw feelings into the story of yours. How would you explain to someone what The Great Believers is about? It's set in 1980s Chicago at the crest of the AIDS epidemic there, um, where we follow one man from the funeral of his first close friend to die of the epidemic, 
over the next seven years as his life both falls apart and takes on greater meaning, but that we're also following in alternating chapters the younger sister of the man whose funeral starts the book, um, and she's in 2015 Paris, and we're following her as she searches for her estranged daughter, but as she also tries to finally come to grips with everything that happened 30 years earlier. There have been a lot of books, a lot of stories, a lot of articles written about the AIDS crisis in New York and San Francisco. What drew you to write about how things played out in Chicago? Well, you know, I'm from Chicago. I've lived there basically my entire life, minus college, in a couple of years. Um, and I knew I wanted to write about Chicago before I really knew what direction the book was going to go in. I didn't know if AIDS was a subplot at that point or if it was the main thrust. Um, but I really felt like I hadn't written a novel about Chicago. Um, and I love Chicago. I love writing about it. It's one of the great loves of my life. And um, when I set out to start researching what the height of the American AIDS crisis had been like in Chicago, I realized how very little there was out there about it, um, which didn't necessarily mean you know, that that told me I should write this book because I also had a lot of questions about whether I had any right to be writing about this. Um, but it certainly intrigued me that there was so little out there, and it forced me out from behind my desk. I wasn't able to do book research. I had to do primary source research, looking back on gay weeklies from the 80s, and then also a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews with people that were endlessly compelling to me. And um, that really hit home for me that this was what I wanted to write about and that there was so much to tell and there were so many untold stories that I hope will continue to come out um, while we still have people with us who remember them. I read one critic wrote of your book that they wanted to know how you managed to capture Chicago in the 80s at that time. And I guess really talking to the people who were there, you couldn't get any better research than that. That was it. I still made mistakes, especially early on, and I'm, I'm sure there are still some mistakes in the book. Um, things that you think you can imagine, but that you're, you know, I, I, although I was alive, I was a kid. I wasn't, you know, hanging out down in Boys Town as a kid. Um, things like, you know, in an early draft, I had someone walking down the street looking for his friends um, down Halstead and, and looking into the windows of the gay bars he passed which is not a thing that you could do in 1985. They would, those windows would have been blacked out, curtained, you know, in some way obscured. Um, it just wasn't something that I, that would have occurred to me. And, um, you know, I got that um, through, you know, through a conversation with a friend who was telling me about that bar scene. Um, I also then had several people who really had been there in the thick of things read the book once it was done to tell me if there were any more moments like that, things that I got, you know, factually wrong or also just if it felt slightly off in tone, if that just wasn't the thing someone would say or quite the way they would think. Um, and those reads were hugely helpful for me too. What were their reactions to living that part of their life through your eyes? I was really touched with how, pe how open people had been to begin with and how supportive they were of this project where I could, you know, I was very much anticipating some people's reactions being, who the hell do you think you are? Um, and um, one of them confessed to me after he read the book that he was really scared to read it, that he was, you know, really sure that I might have gotten it wrong, but that um, ultimately he was very happy with what I'd done. Um, you know, I, 
my hope is that, um, as I said, that those people continue to tell their stories and to put them in writing. And one of the best things that happened to me, you know, as, as I met with people again and again, we, we got to be good friends if we hadn't already been. And um, sometimes those conversations felt very therapeutic, um, I think, for on, on both sides, actually. But I think a lot of stuff was surfacing from people I talked to that they hadn't talked about in a long time. And um, after the fact, one person I'd interviewed emailed me and said, you know, if you want to meet again, I thought of a lot more stuff. And the problem was, I was really done with the book. It was in copy edits. And I thought, the problem is if I meet with him, I'm going to want to put in everything he tells me. And I can't, I literally can't. Um, So I wrote him back and explained the situation and said, you know, love to get together with you, but only socially. Um, And when he wrote back, he said, he said, you know, I think that's probably a sign that it's time for me to start writing some of this down myself. And I was so thrilled to hear that. You really took a very journalistic approach to this book. Is that a new research process for you? And now after having do that, how will you approach researching your future novels? Right. I mean, so it's to be clear, you know, it's journalistic in the process, but not in the ultimate book. It's a novel, you know, and it reads like a novel, not like a nonfiction account. And there was so much that I had to leave out because it didn't fit the story. Um, Someone, not me, someone with really good nonfiction chops needs to write the big nonfiction account of AIDS in Chicago because it hasn't been written. I looked for it for five years. It's not out there. Um, But yeah, no, this was new for me. Um, I'd certainly done some research, especially for my last novel, The Hundred Year House, which was historical. Um, But that research took the form of, you know, kind of fun historical details. Like I ordered the 1929 Sears catalog off of eBay and, you know, so I could get the names of things right. Um, This was quite different. And um, I'm not sure, you know, with my very next project that it will be quite as immersive in research, but there will certainly be things I need to know. And I think I've gotten braver, um, certainly about approaching people, but also about having them read things when I'm done to tell me what I've, what mistakes I've made. Um, and without saying much about my next project, I think I'm going to need a lot of lawyers looking at it, um, not, not to protect me, but to make sure that I've, um, I've gotten some legal stuff right. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. But this book really is more than just about AIDS. Oh, absolutely. Um, on the plot level, for one thing, um, it's also about, you know, this woman's search for her estranged daughter who's disappeared into this cult. It's also about the Paris art world around World War One, both before and after. There's a woman in the 80s who's at the end of her life looking back on that time. It's also about um, proving authenticity on works of art. Um, but then on the emotional levels, too, I think there's a lot more going on. There's a lot about family. There's a lot about parenting. There's a lot about friendship. I definitely needed some tissues uh, along the way while while reading. It really it does it doesn't matter who you are, what you do in life. It's at its core. It it really is just a story about friends, family, the friends who are family, and and every and life in general. Yeah, I was really interested in that idea of chosen family and. Um, the way that can work, but can also fall apart. And then the idea of, you know, blood family and the ways that can fail or succeed. Your title is taken from a line by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Explain that choice. Yeah, I found this line, um, uh, you know, the, the simple line is, we were the great believers. And it goes on from there. It's from an essay he wrote um, at, right at the end of his life called My Generation. Um, and he's talking about the the men um, 
kind of reconvening after World War One, the the you know people who'd lost everyone. And he talks about um, those who felt the first springs when I did and saw death ahead and were reprieved and who now walk the long stormy summer. And I found that quote before I really necessarily knew I was writing about the AIDS crisis. I, I really actually started with this stuff about the 1920s Paris art world um, and, and was reading a book about that and found this quote and just loved that idea for the title. Um, I, and I clung to that title even as I realized that the book was maybe, um, you know, going to be much broader and, and go into um, some very dark things. Um, and it's this very optimistic title. And um, I, I wrote to the title in many ways. It, it, um, every time I thought about that title, it really made me question if I was including in this book um, the optimism that my characters might have had, whether it was, you know, foolish optimism or not. And um, the question of what they do believe in, what what beliefs they cling to um, willfully or um, desperately against all odds. We touched on it a little bit uh, earlier. What do you really hope that readers take away from this book? I mean, I really see my readers falling into two categories, one of which is people who were there and one of which is people who weren't there and don't really know. Um, you know, for the readers who were there in some way, whether, you know, maybe they just lost one friend or maybe they were in the thick of it, um, I really hope that um, what they're getting out of it is a kind of catharsis and a kind of feeling of being seen um, and a book that they could put into someone else's hands to say, here, this is what it was like. I want you to know. Um, for the people who weren't there, either because they were too young or they just, you know, weren't involved in it, um, I, I want this to be, you know, um, a, 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 I, I hate, hate to say an education because, it's, you know, it's, it's fiction. Um, it's not a didactic book and it's not setting out to try to make you feel a certain way. But I certainly learned so much in writing it, and I would hope that people would learn a lot in reading it too, not just about the facts of what happened, but about the emotional fallout that so many people are still living with 30 years later. I can say that I very squarely fall into that latter category. Mm. And it's one of those things that I'm very interested in in it now. And I think what you said is right. Someone needs to go out there and, and write that nonfiction history of what happened. Yeah, the soapbox that I'm on right now is that, you know, if you go to an American high school um, in this era, you're probably going to spend a week or two on World War II, right? Because it's so important. You might spend half a day on the AIDS crisis. And to me, you know, you look at, okay, why, why do we study World War II? Well, we study it because it's one of the major events of the 20th century, because we need to keep that from happening again. And because we need to understand America as it is now as a result and as it was then. And we need to be studying the AIDS crisis for the exact same reasons. And I would argue to the same extent. Right. And you and you touched on that, too, a little bit in the book when we when we talk about the healthcare fight, some of the protests and things that you chronicle that the characters participate in. Oh, yeah. No, it very much gets into, of necessity, you know, our broken health care system and the way that, you know, marginalized people um, are always going to be the victims when when the health care system is broken. Um, you know, it's it's that's that's something that is never going to be outdated um, and and is still happening with HIV AIDS. You know, there are still one point one million people in America living with HIV 
there are also 1 million people dying globally a year of AIDS still, largely in Africa. And, you know, our um, lack of interest in that is shocking. And I think there's some um, unfortunate reasons behind that. But, um, you know, not only is it going to be, you know, a perennially relevant topic of discussion, something we need to know about, but also is still very literally happening right now. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with Rebecca Mackay. The book is The Great Believers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In Spymaster, author Brad Thor once again manages to deliver a book ripped from today's international headlines. That really doesn't come as a surprise to his legion of fans who no doubt will be devouring his latest Scott Harveth thriller on their summer vacations. And if you've ever wondered why Scott spells his name with one T and not two, he told our Pat Farnack. Scott Harvath, who is a uh, former Navy SEAL who gets recruited by the White House to bolster their counterterrorism expertise, uh, he's named after my brother. And my oh. brother is Scott Thor. And my mother oh. didn't like the idea of S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-R. Oh. And so she shortened it just one T. So fans started asking me, readers, why does he only have one T? So I had to write it into my novels that his middle name is Thomas and that his mother didn't like the idea of S-C-O-T-T-T-H-O-M-A-S, and that's why. (laughs) So Scott, with one T and his team, they have to do whatever it takes to keep America and her NATO allies from being dragged into war. Well, that's the whole premise for Spymaster. And what's challenging for me as a political thriller author is how I make the books very, very real, but try not to take any sides, particularly with this tribal as we've gotten in politics now in the United States. And so I was looking at the fact that we have a president uh, unlike anything else in our history. We've got a lot of division, uh, but we also have history that existed before Uh, our current president came to office. We were in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as I looked around the world, particularly at at, uh, Russia, I realized that this year, 2018, September 30th, was going to be the 80th anniversary of the Munich Pact, where uh, Britain and France got together with Mussolini and Hitler and decided to give a chunk of Czechoslovakia to Hitler, hoping that that would stop him. And we, we made a promise in the real world to Ukraine uh, a long time ago when the Soviet Union broke up, a third of their nuclear arsenal uh, was left behind in Ukraine. In the United States and some partners made a promise to Ukraine, if you give up those nukes, we will protect you. We will never allow anyone to invade your country or do anything to you uh, that you would look back and say, gosh, if we had only kept our nukes. Well, what happened? Putin invaded the Crimean Peninsula. That's a big deal. And as we've heard many times, Pat, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so as I was fishing for uh, in my pool of ideas for the premise for Spymaster, I thought, huh, this is interesting. What might an America after two big wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, do if Putin decided to move on one of the very, the smallest of NATO members, like uh, the Baltics, particularly Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, would Americans, number one, be able to find those countries on a map? And number two, would they say, eh, I don't know if it's worth it to go protect them, even though we made a promise in the NATO treaty, Article 5, that an attack on one is an attack on all. And so with that, Stu, I thought, okay, how do I make a thriller out of this? Well, if war is hell, would you be willing to tear up the rule book to prevent ever going to hell? What would we be willing to do with our spies to prevent 
any sort of a thing that would drag us into war? How many rules would we break? And that's where a spymaster takes off. In reading the story, the hair on the back of my head stood up because uh, we're right in the middle of that kind of story right now. And especially with uh, uh, NATO, working in the history of NATO, which has been so important in the news of late. Absolutely. So we saw when uh, President Trump had his first meeting at NATO that mm-hmm. he was chastising them, uh, the members who are not su- uh, spending their Enough. their committed level of mm-hmm. uh, of spending. It's not like they have to pay a bill to NATO and we're somehow picking it up. That was a very misguided uh, uh, conception that got out there. Uh, NATO members are supposed to spend 2% of their GDP on their own military. And there were many that weren't rising to that level. So uh, I don't like trashing partners out in public and airing dirty laundry in public and shaming, uh, you know, partners and things like that. I think a lot of arm twisting behind closed doors can be a good thing. But the fact is, is that Putin does present a threat and NATO is a really important alliance. And in fact, it's done so much for peace and to prevent war uh, in Europe uh, since its uh, conception in the 40s. Uh, So when I looked at what was going on, everybody's looking at North Korea. And that's kind of my thing as a thriller author is to zig when everybody else zags. And I really think that Putin is not going to stop at the Crimean Peninsula. And NATO's important. And what happens in the Baltics is particularly important. And I think it could be a major or break historical moment in real life. And that's why it's so much fun to play with spies and fiction. And there's so many echoes of the Cold War in all of this stuff, even though it's a contemporary thriller. You mentioned that uh, plenty of people couldn't find the countries that uh, uh, Scott Horvath and his team go to. They couldn't find them on a map. And you do a good job of uh, teaching us a little bit of geography, like talking about uh, Gotland and Tallinn in Estonia, which I want to visit now. They really sound delightful to go to if you weren't fighting terrorists and killers. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because I just had uh, a Hollywood movie producer come visit me and take me out to dinner, and he's married to a woman from Sweden. Oh. And he said, how many trips did you have to take to Gotland to get it so right on the money, this this island off the Swedish coast in the Baltic Sea where a, a very interesting portion of the novel takes place? And I said, you know what? I've got a friend from college who actually owns a house there, oh. and I just kept talking to her about what's it like. He goes, it's impossible. Mm. He goes, you captured it so well. It's impossible that you didn't visit it. But I I like to do this with my novels. If I can't get to the places, I want to talk to people who have lived there. And my number one choice is spies and people like that who have operated there because they notice things that the average person doesn't. And I think part of my job as a thriller author, number one, I'm supposed to give you a white knuckle thrill ride. But if you close my books a little bit smarter or you've learned some things you didn't know before, you've got some questions, uh, then I've really done my job as an entertainer. And in fact, a lot of readers tell me, Brad, I love to read your books with my laptop open because I see all these things I've never heard of. And I go, oh, he must have made that up. And mm-hmm. then they, they search it online and say, oh, gosh, no, this is true. So that's kind of the fun benefit from a Brad Thor thriller. I like the little touches also. Uh, for instance, Scott is reading The Terminal List by Jack Carr, and we just interviewed Jack Carr, and that's a real book. Oh, it's uh, We call them Easter eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of stumbling around through the grass, and then you find this Easter egg, and it's this great treat. You didn't know it was there. I, I did that recently. Actually, I did it for the first time in my thriller, Use of Force, last summer, where I had a couple of the characters reading, because as I spent time with SEALs and Delta Force, 
Force people uh, and got to spend time with them outside the United States, a lot of them were big readers. And I thought, okay, this is this is legit. You guys, yeah. they're like, yeah, we, we, we're not on our devices all the time. Sometimes <laughs> we're not allowed to use devices in certain countries because we don't want to leave a trail. And we're big readers. And I thought, okay, that's authentic. And I want to put that in my thrillers, too. You have Scott also grappling with his old boss and mentor, who is sadly fading into Alzheimer's and what that means for an old spy to take some of his secrets with him. Uh, Yes. So the kind of master spy in my thrillers uh, is based on a real-life CIA operative who passed away two years ago by the name of Dwayne Dewey Claridge. And Dewey helped set up the counterterrorism center at the CIA. He uh, is a legend in the espionage world. And sadly, Dewey was taken uh, by cancer. And as, uh, as I spoke to people who worked with Dewey, who knew Dewey, I knew him. It was interesting. Everybody lamented such a great American being taken, but also the wealth of experience that was going to go to the grave with him. And so as I sat in my office and I was thinking, how, am I, how can I reflect this in my thrillers? Well, my mom is suffering from dementia. And she's losing her most recent memories quickest, and it's the oldest ones that stay around. So it was a little bit of catharsis for me. It was a little bit of being able to weave that kind of tender and sad part of my own life into my thrillers and have it have a resonance that hopefully every reader, regardless if they know somebody going through this or not, can relate to. Certainly worked. Certainly worked. Uh, Scott may be going into management, or is he? Well, that's the one of my favorite thriller movies of all time is a movie called Ronin with Robert De Niro. It was a script that was rewritten by David Mamet. And David Mamet is, is famous for just being an incredible, incredible writer. And I remember one scene uh, where Jean Renault, the French actor, famous French actor, and Robert De Niro meet each other for the first time before doing this big heist job. And he, John Renault says, are you management or labor? And I've always loved that line. And it is something, uh, is I know spies in counterterrorism people that are getting into their 40s and things like this. They're like professional athletes. They wake up every day with aches and pains, and they're trying to find ways to stay in the game for just a little bit longer because they don't want to leave the field. They don't want to be behind a desk, even though they're so valuable they probably shouldn't be going back into the field. They should be training that next generation. They should be the the new Dewey Claridge, if you will. So that was what I rolled into this for Scott because he can't kick indoors and chase bad guys forever. Mm -hmm. At some point, he's got to bring up that next generation. And that's something, grappling with that has been something that readers uh, have really told me that they enjoy. Well, he sort of is uh, training the next generation, but not quite out of it entirely himself. Right. Correct. And he's he's got some more door kicking and bad guy chasing. Uh, in fact, there's a funny part in the book. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there's a there's a point where he's chasing a bad guy and he gets uh, he gets skunked by one of the younger operatives underneath him who get to the bad gets to the bad guy first. And it's a, it's a moment where I, I, I enjoyed putting humor in the books, but it was one point where I was writing where I actually kind of chuckled out loud at my desk when I put that in there. And I thought, yep, that nails how he's feeling. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it is a cliffhanger at the end, which I don't want to give away, but it indicates that there's got to be another Scott Horvath uh, book in the offing. 
if it isn't already yeah. finished by you, you work so quick. Yeah, I do a book a year. That's my that's mm-hmm. my uh, model with Simon and Schuster, and uh, I'm already hard at work on the next one. But that was kind of fun that cliffhanger because I wrote the book and I ended it. Uh, I was talking to my wife and my son, and I'm like, "How do I end this? How do I end this?" And they gave me an idea, and I started playing with, it, and I came back to them and I said, "Okay, how about if we take that and then add this?" And my wife and my son went, "That's it." That's how you do it. And I thought, okay, if I get that kind of reaction just describing it in my kitchen, uh, you know, at the sink as I'm pouring a cup of coffee, then I think I got something special. That's right. If they go for it, it's got to be a winner. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. And I guess, as you indicated earlier, you're uh, well into the next book. I am not struggling because it's early yet, but the big thing for me is how do I get a good title? I love the Spymaster title, and Mm -hmm. my challenge to myself is how do I top what I did last time? So that's, uh, it looks like a beautiful mind in my office with everything stuck to the wall, relationships in the plot, and then all the three by five cards with potential titles. So this time next year when we talk, Pat, uh, we'll be able to look back and you can say, how long did it take you to get that title? Wow. (laughs) I'm looking forward to being at that point with you in 12 months. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time, Brad. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Okay. And that does it for this week's Star Spangled Show. Next week, we'll hear from an author challenging a long-held belief about the classic American novel, The Great Gatsby. Enjoy the beach and the barbecues, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. Happy 4th.